Christiane Amanpour has this saying, be truthful, not neutral. And I think about that a lot while she's doing interviews. Like this one from a few days ago, it was with a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So we're joined now by the Prime Minister's longtime confidant and senior advisor, Mark Regev. Uh, Mark Regev, welcome to And the she asks him what seems like a simple question. So how can you conduct a war where you say you're respecting international law, even at this terrible time, when this is against, and, 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 a, and a joint question is, how does it help your fight to deny food, fuel, and water to civilians? This is the question that could dictate the direction of this war. How far will Israel go in its response to the Hamas terrorist attack that sparked this conflict, with its killing and kidnappings on Israel's soil? And will the images of the destruction in Gaza and the killing of Palestinian civilians draw more countries Hamas into the conflict. Now, you asked me about uh, uh, civilian casualties. And food there has and, not been and a food, war a food in modern and history fuel and water. without civilian casualties. I'll get to that. Regev, who has become the go-to spokesman for Israel in this conflict, gave a revealing answer. So I will, I'll answer that now with your permission. They declared war on us, and then they expect business as usual that the crossings be open, that the channels of communication be open. No, you declare war on us, so it's war. You can't have war and cooperation at the same time. They don't go together. Is there another example of one country attacking another and then saying, well, we have to trade together, we have to communicate together? No, you declared war on us. There are consequences of those decisions. If you want to talk about the electricity, first of all, we know that electricity is being used for their military machine. But put that aside for a a moment. We know that Hamas rockets have destroyed a large part of the grid that brings the electricity to Gaza. So what is the absurdity? Israel is supposed to fix the grid that they've destroyed so they can have electricity for their own missiles to fire more again. I'm sorry, it's not logical. All right, all right, Mark. On today's episode, what this answer means for the people who must now decide whether to evacuate from northern Gaza or remain. I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. President Joe Biden promised $100 million in humanitarian aid for Gaza and the West Bank. And at the time of this recording, Israel had agreed to let food, water, and other supplies into Gaza through the southern border with Egypt, but with major conditions, that it had to be inspected and none of it could reach Hamas. Now, getting to that aid or to the southern border crossing safely will not be easy. My name is Yahya Abu Ghazala. Yahya is one of the people at CNN tasked with finding people on the ground in Gaza. I am with the investigative unit in Washington, D.C. And he's particularly good at sorting through social media and finding contacts in Gaza who can connect him with Palestinians who want to share their stories. All U.S. citizens and whoever wants to leave from Gaza um, are all waiting for the Rafah crossing border to open so we can enter and get out of here. I don't know how many people in the south are, but... You could imagine how many people will be there if all of the Gaza Strip are going to be on uh, in the south. Getting these voices is difficult when it comes to Gaza, where there is barely electricity and spotty internet. Yahya asked people to send him voice memos of what they've been seeing and feeling now that Palestinians have been told to evacuate their homes. 
Yahya's reporting reveals the difficulty Gazans face as they decide whether to follow evacuation orders. Israel has had a long history of essentially issuing warnings to Palestinians in Gaza through the form of phone calls, text messages, or dropping flyers from overhead onto certain communities. These are all, you know, notorious. And the flyers just say, get out now. Like, are these automated calls? Some of them can be recorded calls that they will get on their phone. A lot of the times it will be a call from from the Israeli military, and you'll pick up the phone, and essentially they will tell you, you know, you need to evacuate this building. There is going to be a strike imminently. Tell everyone you know and get out. And sometimes there's no room for back and forth. Sometimes you can ask them follow-up questions if you're trying to get additional details. But let me be clear, these are very concise calls with very limited information. So what I've been told from people I've been speaking with is oftentimes, if you are lucky enough to get one of these calls, they not they don't all often result in a strike. They have told me that there is a there's a long history of these calls kind of being used in what they describe as psychological warfare and that you'll get a call or a text message to evacuate your building. You will rush out with all of whatever belongings you'll scramble with your family and your neighbors only for no strike to ever come. Right. And so we should say that's their perception. Like, we, we don't know if the Israeli government will say, we just didn't do a strike that day. Yes, like, exactly. This is, this is from the people that I'm speaking to when I ask them about, have you gotten these calls before in the past? They have described them to me in the case of, if you get them, in the first place, you are very fortunate. You're not guaranteed to get them. If they even come to your house, a lot of the times it'll come through a neighbor. Your neighbor will have gotten the call, and they will relay that information to your buildings and others around the street that a strike is coming. And so, the you know, in uh, one of the one of the people I spoke to told me, if you're lucky enough to get one of these calls, you'll leave your building saying, "Thank God." Can you introduce us to any of the people that you've been in communications yeah, with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, early on, I got in touch with Hanin. She's a 31-year-old Palestinian-American from New Jersey, actually. It took us like 10 to 12 hours only deciding whether this is real, whether it's fake news. Uh, it took us 10 to 12 hours trying to make a decision whether to leave uh, Who's going to leave with us? Some family members refused to go get out of home. The streets were full of families. Yes, they were rushing and backing into cars with their bags. Some of them had to walk. Can you imagine some of them had to walk to reach the south? She's currently stuck there with her three children, the youngest of them being a two-month-old. In, in this audio, we are hearing essentially like this, the the decision moment, right? The deciding of whether to go and whether to stay. Um, Can you describe what's going on here? Yeah. Hanin has had a really hard time grappling with the decision of fleeing southwards. And originally this was on Friday. And now she is in in South Gaza near the Rafah border crossing. She's been there for almost a week now, just constantly waiting to hear whether the border crossing is going to be open. And she has to make that decision every day. Will she go there with her three children, take that risk, only to find that it's yet again going to be closed and make her way back? In the U.S., we have no real context for this. Maybe it's like a hurricane is coming. But I feel like I heard four or five different questions in there that she was like, we have to ask ourselves before we make a move. First, she was asking, is this even real? Yes. So to your point earlier of like, 
are we getting a real notice? And then, and then like, who's going to leave with us? Yeah. Which was surprising to me. Yeah. The reason that it's very difficult to know, in order to take that decision is because leaving your home means there may be no guarantee that you'll ever be able to return in this situation. And the journey southwards is a dangerous one. So 10 to 12 hours when you hear Hanin describe that is her deciding, is this something real that I now have to take my family, um, my kids, my neighbors going south on a on a route that is dangerous. There's no guarantee she'll make it. And then I also, another question I heard in there was that some people were refusing to go. Mm. Yes, so... How common is that? These Palestinians who are still in the north following the evacuation notice, many of them just could not go to the south. They didn't have anywhere to go. They don't know anyone they can stay with. These are large families. Their homes are there in the north. And so them refusing is not so much a, I just don't want to leave. It is, I don't know where to go. And even if I were to go there, I'm not guaranteed to even make it there safely. This is, you know, what they're telling me from the reporting that I'm, you know, from the conversations that I've been having. And, you know, one of the things that, um, one of the people that I spoke to told me, if I'm going to die, I might as well die at home rather than flee to the south and be killed there as well, far from my home. And so these are all things Palestinians are thinking about in real time when these evacuation notices are coming. And the, and the conversations from the people that I've been speaking to, they're grappling with this extensively. I want to explore this a little more um, with another voice, uh, that of Yara. It's really dangerous if we leave our house. It's really dangerous if we stayed in our house. So we have no idea what to do. Can you tell us who this is? Yara is a 22-year-old Palestinian. She is currently stuck in North Gaza with her family. Um, Her her brother described her to me as just very bright, um, graduated high school in the 97th percentile, um, very smart. And she's stuck in northern Gaza with her family because they don't have anywhere to go in the south. All what we was thinking is what if they bombed the house next door? How are we going to, like, wake them all up and start running away? Or or are we going to be next? Or it was, I don't know, I was, had a lot of mixed up thoughts in my head. Tell us what's going on um, in this moment. Yeah, um, Yara was telling me basically kind of some of the thoughts that her and her family have been grappling with in that if in a moment's notice a building in their neighborhood is bombed, what are they going to do? How are they going to wake up their family members and go not knowing if the route there is going to be safe? Um, and she's told me repeatedly every night, you know, we, we check in. I send her messages, just let me know that you're okay. And she'll message me saying, I, I don't know if this is going to be my last night. And this night, I really, really thought that it is, this is going to be my last night. I was really terrified, really scared. And... I'm not the only one that feels that way. Every Palestinian that lives in Gaza feels that way every single night since uh, the last week. So I just hope this ends, uh, this ends and everyone stays safe. She's told me she's been going to sleep borrowing her brother's noise-canceling headphones because otherwise she can't sleep from the bombing outside. We're going to pause here for a moment, and when we come back, 
what it's been like to report on Gaza from afar. When I see my phone light up from a text message or as a response, I will drop everything I'm doing because I know I might only have this person for the next couple of minutes before they lose connection again. I'll be back in a minute. I'm here with Yahya Abu Ghazala from CNN's investigative team. He's been getting updates from Palestinians in Gaza, those who are trying to leave, often traveling on crowded and dangerous roads south. Now, Hamas's critics say at least some of the money that they've spent on weapons and underground tunnels for their fighters could have been spent on civilians for bomb shelters or early warning networks like those across the border in Israel, where Hamas rocket fire over the years has led to the building of sophisticated protections for civilians. Israel has invested a lot in its civil defense systems, billions of dollars over the years, a lot of, the, a lot of that coming from the United States as well. And it's in order to establish a robust, very technologically advanced civil defense system. So, Precisely because of their fears of a siege or invasion or something like what happened. Yeah, so if I were to kind of lay it out for you and what would happen, if, if a rocket is fired by Hamas towards Israel— You have early warning radars that detect that rocket that will then sound air raid sirens in the targeted location, alerting residents in that area to flee to bomb shelters where Israeli law requires residential buildings, industrial buildings, homes to have fortified bomb shelters of sorts to, you know, as an option for their civilians to flee to. And then once they're able to get to that safe location, they also have the Iron Dome. It is a military capability. They a missile also have, system to yeah. counter any missile strikes, which we saw get overwhelmed, right, with the Hamas attack. Yes. Israel has said that it's about, you know, over 90 percent effective in terms of intercepting these rockets that come their way. And so that kind of lends to how robust Israel's civil defense system is over the years because of how much they've invested in fortifying their abilities and protecting their civilians. So if you are Palestinian, your ability to get notified go somewhere else and be safe in that somewhere else are very different than that of Israeli citizens. Yeah. You are reliant on sporadic text messages and calls. You don't have an air raid siren to let you know that something's coming. If you get one of these calls, your only refuge is the streets because there's no such thing as a bomb shelter in Gaza. And so the the civil defense systems in Gaza don't really exist in terms of protecting civilians from incoming Israeli airstrikes. What drew you to this story in this particular part of it, this window into people trying to escape? Immediately, I think the reason I was drawn to that angle was because I had not heard or seen any reporting about Palestinian Americans who I knew to be stuck in Gaza, and I didn't know anything about them, what their status was. I couldn't find any reporting. And so my instinct told me, hey, Find them. Talk to them. There's a reason they haven't been able to get out. And through that process, I was able to get some of them on the phone and understand that they've been scrambling, trying to get word, trying to hear from someone from the embassy to get them out, to give them a hand. And they were not getting that. And I felt like 
that was a part of the story that no one was even thinking about at the time. And I figured there's a good way to give these people who don't have a voice, who don't have a platform in there. So people are using what little internet they have, what little electricity they have to try and get their story out in the world. And what has that looked like? Are they journalists in Gaza? Are they teenagers? Are they families? It's everybody. Quite a short answer. It's everybody. I'm talking to college students. I'm talking to, you know, parents. I'm talking to U.S. citizens, Gazans who are, who live there, who were born and raised there. You know, in the instances they get electricity, I'm grateful that they'll take the 15 to 20 minutes to even talk to me on the phone and, you know, clarify a detail, you know, give me the sourcing or the information that I needed to confirm something. They've been very resourceful in a lot of ways. They have backup batteries that they've amassed over the years because this is not the first war on Gaza. This is not the first time they've been bombarded. So they have their own workarounds. They have car batteries that will, you know, connect to outlets, which a lot of phone chargers will be, you know, plugged into. Some homes have solar panels that they've established over the years so that they can almost not have to be reliant on, you know, the supply of electricity. So, you know, the Palestinians over the years, from what they're telling me, is they've become very resourceful because they have to. It's out of necessity. One of the things that strikes me as I'm listening to you talk is that, like, as a young journalist, your first big catastrophic story really does shape your understanding of, like, your work and the work ahead. For me, it was 9-11. I started in 2001, like, that summer before So, like, the Ukraine war, this, like, this is your introduction to this work. How is it going? If anything, the last week has really shown me what good journalism can do when you are able to reach the people who don't have access to get their information out. And I think the reason it's been really hard in this case is, unlike a lot of situations, the ability to get information out of Gaza is so difficult. I rely on sending text messages with people I'm speaking to to see, you know, the one check mark rather than two on WhatsApp, which tells you it hasn't been delivered yet because they don't have internet. When I see my phone light up from a text message or as a response, I will drop everything I'm doing because I know I might only have this person for the next couple of minutes before they lose connection again. But what about social media? I feel like anybody on TikTok right now, I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about the terrible images and things like that that have come on social media. But I do see a lot of, quote unquote, reporting by the people in Gaza about what's happening to them through Mm -hmm. videos or messages like you brought to us. Yeah, exactly. And these are these are videos that you're seeing uploaded. These are, you know, a lot of these are almost like citizen journalists in a way, in that they are trying to just post and document what they can and post those videos and get them out there. Um, But also we are reporters. And when we see these videos, we have to get in touch with the people there, verify them, understand what happened. And that process, when you don't have a direct channel in there, you don't know who was there, who might even have the ability to speak to you. I think that is where we're running into the issue. Right. Where, like you can't just look at it, put it up and say CNN says. No, I need to, I, I see the video. I need to corroborate it. I need to speak to the people who are impacted. And that's good journalism. Can you tell us anything about the people that we heard, Yara or Hanin? Did they make it, so to speak? Yeah, so Yara's still stuck. Um, I've been sending her messages constantly just to check in on her. Um one of the hardest parts about this is anytime they don't respond for a very long time, 
and I don't see my message has been delivered, I fear the worst. Um, Hanin, I spoke to her husband who is here, who for more than a week has been anxiously trying to figure out how to get them out. He told me Hanin is near the Rafah border crossing waiting, and she told him that she's thinking of going back up north because that's where her home is. It's been very difficult for her. She's and when we say back up north, we're saying going back to the area that Israel is about zone. to lay siege to in some ways. Back up to the evacuation zone because that's where her home is. And as of right now, she's in danger in the south. Like I said, she's gone to the border crossing and bombings have been near her constantly. And so from what her husband has told me, she's told him she's thinking of going back up north because she just can't take what it's been like in the south right now and just needs to go back home. That was Yahya Abu Ghazala of CNN's investigative team. He's been talking with and reporting on Palestinians in Gaza. Now, we have links to his reporting in our show notes. And as a reminder, this is just one part of CNN's ongoing coverage. For daily reporting on the conflict, check out CNN's podcast, Tug of War, Israel at War. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Isoke Samuel and Carla Javier. Our producers are Jennifer Lai, Lori Gallaretta and Dan Bloom, and Madeline Thompson. The senior producer of our show is Matt Martinez. Mixing and sound design by Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Katie Hinman, and of course to you for listening. I'm Audie Cornish.